And we're in 1 Kings chapter 17 at uh, the story of Elijah. So if you'll turn to the 17th chapter of 1 Kings, we'll begin there in just a moment. Walking with God is the most exciting and fulfilling, rewarding experience on earth. But it is also the most difficult. I know of no exception that a person who learns to walk with God, those people who most closely are associated, who most closely walk with God, are the people most acquainted with grief. I know no exception. I walked a mile with with pleasure. She chattered all the way. But I was none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and never a word, said she. But all the things I learned from her as sorrow walked with me. I suppose that God puts or permits sorrow in the life of His people that they might become increasingly committed to Him. A.W. Tozer, who is perhaps one of my uh, most favorite writers, has said, When God wants to use a man greatly, He hurts him deeply. It's the principle of brokenness. And nowhere does that more apply than in the life of Elijah. Last week we found we left him at the brook, dried up brook in Cherith. For God took him out there to teach him a lesson. I want to just review just a second. I failed to do something last week that's important, I think. And that is to, to, to tell you what the word Cherith means. And it's significant in this study. The word means, it comes from a Hebrew verb that means to cut. It means to cut down or to cut off. It's the idea of, of whittling, really, or um, tearing away, or even filing. It's what Ron Dunn refers to when he talks about heavenly sandpaper. And he says that there are experiences in life which are like heavenly sandpaper that God uses to to polish us and to refine us. That was what Cherith was to Elijah. He took him out, he cut him off from his place of prominence as a great prophet, and he cut him away from from the people with whom he had been involved. And he took him out to Cherith and he began to whittle away at all the things in his life that stood between him and the great mission to which he called him. And he began to refine him and polish him and file away at him. It was the Cherith experience. That's the way God uh, uh, trains his uh, prophets, his people. And that's the next point there. I want to show you how the progression that God uses often. First, He just cuts through our pride. Because it is our pride that stands between us and and God's purpose for our life. And the result of God cutting through our pride oftentimes brings the fear of the loss of status. And that results in resentment. And so God cuts through all of that and He brings us to the point where we see all the habits of our life, all of our reactions, our responses. And then as God begins to work through our, in in that, work, uh, cut through our habits, we begin to see the revolution, the transformation of the inner man. And whatever it takes for God to get 
the transformation to get the refinement of the inner man. I promise you that's what God will use. Because God is not interested in our comfort. He's interested in our character. Now, I want us to look in the outline and watch now as we come to the experiences, to the experience at Zarephath, beginning at verse 8. Now, I need to tell you what that word means, because that too is significant to this study. Zarephath means to smelt or to melt. It's interesting that the noun of that word is, the word is, a, is a word that means crucible. It's a crucible of melting or smelting. It's like God putting us in the fire in order to, to, to refine us. I said one time that if the Lord puts you in the fire... Just remember that he's not an arsonist. He didn't put you there to destroy you. He's a refiner. The fire will not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And how many of us tonight are there in our, the experience of our life in Zarephath, where God puts us in the crucible of, of the fire in order to refine us? The slag is removed, the dross is removed, and what is left is the pure gold, is the refined product. That's where we find Elijah. Now look first of all at the command of God, verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. I want to say a couple of things about God's command. First of all, God knew where he was. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. God knew where he was. Don't ever think that God doesn't know where you are, that he's forgotten you, that you abandoned somewhere on the backside of the universe. God knows where you are in this very moment. Don't ever forget that. God knows where you are. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Secondly, God knows where you're going. Now, you may not know where you're going, but God does. He said to Elijah, Arise, go, and stay. God knows where you're going. Lloyd Ogilvy tells about the time that he was catching a plane in a busy airport in Atlanta. And he said they went up to this uh, ticket counter and they um, were checking his reservation. They had this computer there and they punched in the information. Couldn't find anything about his reservation. Finally, the man turned to Ogilvy and he said, you know, he said, this computer's broken down. It's down, I guess. He said, I don't know where you're going. Ogilvy said, that's okay, God does. God knows where you're going. You remember that verse of Scripture when Jesus said to Nicodemus, The wind blows where it listeth, where it wills, and you hear the sound of it. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. Thus is he who is born of the Spirit. Now you may not know where you go from this night forward, but God does. Little did Nicodemus know that the wind of the Spirit that was moving upon his life at night would take him to the council chambers of Pilate and one of the most courageous acts in the gospel story and then to the cross and the resurrection. Little did that monk know that named Martin Luther when the wind of the Spirit began to stir in his cell 
that God would lead him one day to the reformation of the church. And little did the, the New Testament church know as it gathered in the upper room at Pentecost that the wind of the Spirit that was shaking them would lead them to Caesar's presence and the conquest of the world. It would probably frighten us tonight to know where the wind of the Spirit leads us, will lead us. When I was a kid, barefoot, hoeing and chopping cotton in West Texas, never in my wildest dreams did I ever dream that God would lead me into a pulpit like this to pastor this great church. Sometimes it might be a little frightening just to think where the Spirit of God might lead you. Here's a young man getting his degree from college, pre-med student. One day the wind of the Spirit blows, blows upon his heart and leads him to give his life out in Africa at a, a meager small and pitiful salary. You may not know where you're going, but God does. And this is what he told him. He said two things. He said, I want you to go to Zarephath. That was 75 to 100 miles from Cherith. And Elijah was a hunted man. In the 18th chapter of 1 Kings, it says that everybody in the kingdom was looking for him. And so God said to him, I want you to get up from this secure place in the brook of obscurity and I want you to go to the city, a 75 mile to 100 mile journey and everybody was looking for him. It says to me that sometimes where God leads us, there is involved a great risk. It may mean that you'll give up something you want most of all in life, that is your own security. And the second thing he told him was, I've got a widow woman who's going to take care of you there. Now that was quite a blow to this man's ego. He would have liked it a lot better if God had said to, Je uh, to Elijah, I want you to go there and take care of a widow woman. Sometimes where God leads us, it's a very humbling experience. And we chafe at that, resist that sometimes. But the humbling experiences of life prepare us for the greatest task. Look at Elijah's obedience Verses 10 through 14. Let's read them together. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Welcome to Zarephath. Here's a woman gathering sticks. She said, would you get me a drink of water and a piece of bread? And she said, I don't have any bread, just a little flour and a little oil. I'm going in to cook them so we can starve to death. And God said, I want you to go to to uh, Zarephath, got a woman who'll take care of you there. She, when he got there, she said, Welcome to Zarephath, so you can die with us. In the test of obedience, Elijah, in, in the test of Elijah's life, he passed the obedience test. There are two things involved in that. I want you to notice. Number one is the test of first impression. The test of first impression. Now, I remember when God uh, uh, interrupted my um, secure uh, life when I was pastoring in West Texas and said, I want you to go out to, to the Northwest and, um, and, 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 and do mission work for me. And so, um, 
to the absolute terror of the whole in the whole situation. I resigned my church, never had a salary. We stored our furniture in, in uh, Plainview and moved into a little trailer and waited for school to be out so we could head to, to Washington, the northwest. Got my kids in a car, got a U-Haul truck, U-Haul trailer, tied it on the back, headed out to Washington. All these dreams about what it's going to be like when I got there. That guy was telling about it when he was here. Gave, gave his testimony, you know, on Easter Sunday from Washington. Drove in to Spokane, had all these visions that... You know, Spokane was going to be waiting for me, and I was going to turn the world upside down. Pulled in there. Some of the people didn't even know I was coming. Had a little apartment, and they scrounged up some used furniture. You know, people loaned so we could have. Didn't have a salary. Some of them resented that I even came. What's this Texan doing? Coming up here to the Northwest to tell us how to do things. First impression, you know what I wanted to do? Head back home. Say to that church, would you take me back, you know. The test of obedience oftentimes is the test of first impression. But Elijah wasn't going to let first impression blues overcoming. Look what he said in verse 13. He said, Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said. But make me a little bread cake from it first. From it first. Ladies first. No, Elijah first. And bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. That's, that's generous of him. That's as kind of him. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Now how in the world could Elijah make a statement like that? Well, because he had just traveled a hundred miles in the presence of miracles. He had already seen God provide, and he knew God would provide. He'd just been a hundred miles in the presence of miracles. Now the woman was looking at the bowl and the jar, but Elijah was looking at the God of the bowl and the jar, and that makes the difference. Now look at God's faithfulness, verses 15 and 16. This is the best part of all. So he went and did so she went and did according to the word of Elijah and she and he and her household ate for many days the bowl of flour was not exhausted nor did the jar of oil become empty according look according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah Now I I just want you to kind of get in your mind the picture of, of um, the woman and Elijah and her son sitting down every day to eat, staring right in the face of a miracle. Can, can you imagine the excitement of that? And every day they'd sit down to eat and they'd just sit there, you know, and stare at a miracle of God. And, and can you imagine what... Uh, Elijah's prayer when he said grace. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Oh God, we just praise you for this. We thank you for this. We're grateful, God, for your provision. And Elijah had this room, you know, upstairs. And every morning, you know what he probably heard going on down in the, in the you know, down in breakfast? Now, they didn't have a lot of variety in, you know, it... Uh, 
in the, in, in, in the morning, it was, bread, it was biscuits and water, and in the evening, it was water and biscuits. But, you know, it was what they needed. It was what they needed. might not have been all they wanted. It was what they needed. Can you imagine what it must have been like in the morning and Elijah woke up? You know, what, to, to what sound? I think something like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Why not? I think Elijah just heard the sounds of that woman down there cooking breakfast, just praising God because God met her in the kitchen every morning. I'll tell you what, He'll meet you there in the kitchen every morning. And every day God provides daily bread. You know why? Because God is faithful, it'll be according to the Word of the Lord. Stake your life on that. Now, there are four lessons I see in this that kind of stand out. Let's get these and we're through. Number one, God's calling is often surprising. Don't analyze it. God's calling is often surprising. Don't analyze it. Now, God might call you sometime to do something that seems absolutely absurd to you. Don't try to analyze that. Just obey and there may be times when God will ask of you, will, will require of you that which seems totally um, absurd. Don't analyze it. For God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and His ways are higher than our ways. God's calling is often surprising. Don't analyze it. Number two, the beginning days are often hardest, the hardest days. Don't give up. The beginning days are often the hardest days. Don't give up. Number three. God's provision... Oh, I want you to get this. God's provision often hinges on obedience. Don't ignore your part. God's provision often hinges on obedience. Don't ignore your part. The provision God gives is, on your, is conditioned upon your obedience to His command, His will. Number four, God's provisions are often just enough. Don't fail to thank Him. Have you, forget, have you forgotten to thank Him for the provision of this day? Arthur Pearson has a book entitled The Bible and Spiritual Life. He makes this statement. Let me read it and I'm through. Being determined to perfect His saints, God puts His precious metal into His crucible. Then He sits beside and watches it. Love is His thermometer, and love marks the exact degree of heat. Not one instance of unnecessary pain will He permit. And soon, as soon as the dross is released, and He sees Himself reflected in the furnace, the trial ceases." End quote. 
as soon as he sees himself reflected in your life, the trial ceases. As soon as he sees himself shining in your life, the trial ceases. Let's pray together. Father, take us to Zarephath and teach us the lessons of risk and humility. Teach us obedience even though first impression once causes us to want to run the other way. Help us to believe in the physical impossibilities, to believe that you will provide. And then help us for deliverance from them. Help us, Father, to see that the trial will not cease until we're perfected in your image. Lord, I pray that we might have the courage and the grace and the faith to yield fully and completely to the furnace and the file. This is my prayer in Jesus' name for His sake. Now our invitations tonight are like this. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. It's the invitation to salvation. God sent His Son Jesus to be the salvation, to be the redemption for you, the propitiation for your sin, the payment for your sin. And He offers you tonight the free gift of eternal life if you'll receive that free gift. If you're willing to turn from your sin and confess your faith in Jesus, trusting Him only, He'll bring about salvation and forgiveness and redemption. Second invitation is for us to come to place our life in the church or for a closer walk of Christian discipleship. Maybe God has been bringing you through the furnace and the fire and the fire because He wants to burn away all that dross and file away all that rough, those rough edges and those imperfections that are in your life. Blessed is the furnace and the fire. As soon as you yield your life to God and He's reflected in your life, then the trial will cease, not till. Would you come tonight to say, I want to trust Christ. I want to walk closer to the Lord. I want to repent of my sinful way and give myself to Christ in fullness. Would you do that while we stand to sing? You come right quickly.